This is Nemeth Asetmotha for NEJM Catalyst. I am speaking today with Dr. Rishi Sikha, President of System Enterprises at Sutter Health, a large nonprofit health system based in Northern California, known for its integrated patient-centered approach in caring for the communities it serves. Today, we will be discussing the opportunities and challenges of leading a health system that is reimbursed for the care it provides patients under both fee-for-service and value-based contracts. It is a common scenario that most healthcare delivery systems grapple with daily. And Dr. Sikha, thank you for joining us because our audience will definitely benefit from hearing your insights. Thank you. Thank you so much, Namita. It's great to be here. Let's start by setting some context. Tell us a little bit about Sutter Health and where you are on this journey towards evolving to value-based care. Yeah, thank you. So. Sutter Health is an integrated delivery system. We are based out of Sacramento, and we provide the majority of our care in Northern California. We have a few small exceptions. We, we do have some services uh, and care that we provide actually in Hawaii and in Southern California. Uh, Sutter Health, uh, like most integrated delivery systems, we have a, a collection of capabilities. We have 24 hospitals. We have 35 ambulatory surgery centers and two surgical hospitals, which are part of the portfolio that I oversee. We have eight behavioral health centers, including two freestanding psychiatric hospitals. That's also part of System Enterprise. Uh, we also have one of the largest home health and hospice organizations in the country. Uh, we saw uh, over 650,000 patients uh, home health visits in 2019 and well over 200,000 hospice visits uh, in, our, in our organization. Uh, so that's a, a little bit about Sutter Health, I guess, sort of a, from a you know, capabilities perspective. In terms of where we are in value-based care, right now about 20% of our, of our lives, of our business is in value-based care. We do have our own health plan. We have a commercial HMO product in the Northern California market, Sutter Health Plus. Uh, we do also have a uh, narrow network joint venture product uh, in the PPO space uh, with, with Aetna. Uh, we also have our own employees in, in a health plan uh, as well. Uh, we have about 50,000, so just a, a little bit, we have about 90,000 lives in our in our commercial HMO product. We also do have uh, various Medicare Advantage arrangements. We have about 50,000 uh, lives in Medicare Advantage arrangements. A couple months ago, we recently launched an aligned uh, Medicare Advantage product with uh, alignment health plan. So that's uh, a little bit newer for us as an organization. We do have a, a glide, path, glide path and an intentionality for our portion of value-based care to increase over the next uh, four to five years, and, and we're aspiring to have about 60% of our of our arrangements, 60% of our business to be in value-based care within about a four to five-year time frame. How did you decide that time frame? How did you figure out how fast or how slow uh, to move into into value-based contracts? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So part of it is our understanding of where the market is going and and what we think would be possible from a, from a market perspective. And a lot of that is actually driven by the plans themselves and in the commercial space by, by self-insured uh, 
by self-insured and fully insured employers. I would say the other piece that we are balancing against that is getting our capability set and our abilities robust enough and deep enough and you know, functioning at a level so that we can manage that level of value-based care effectively, both from a quality perspective and then from a total cost of care perspective. So uh, the, the two drivers in terms of, in terms of that pace of change are, are obviously your, your local market. For, and then there's what you also mentioned in terms of your internal capabilities. What are some markers of knowing that you are deep enough? What are some of those capabilities? Uh, how do you know, how mature do they have to be uh, in order for you to say with confidence that, yes, we can accept more risk uh, than, than we could before? Yeah. So, so I think one of the, the big steps that uh, we took about a year ago we set up a new division. It is part of System Enterprise called Sutter Population Health Services. So a lot of the different capabilities that you might call, quote, population health, which you know, it's kind of a, a, it's a buzzword, it's an all-encompassing term. You know, I, I'd rather say, you know, the collection of clinical capabilities that can supplement a physician practice to be able to effectively deliver on quality and total cost of care in value-based arrangements. Those capabilities, they were kind of dispersed throughout the organization. In some cases, they had existed for many years. So what we did is we took those different capabilities and we put them into um, one organization under one leader and set that up about a year ago. So some of those capabilities are, you know, ambulatory care management, having care managers embedded within physician practices to target patients who are at particular risk for uh, adverse or, or unnecessary utilization, and then working with the physician and reaching out to them. We've had a telephonic disease management program as well that allows us to manage patients uh, with diabetes and, and hypertension and, and titrate their, their medications. We have an inpatient care management program uh, as well. Uh, we, uh, we also oversee a, a PACE program, programs for all-inclusive care for elderly, for dual-eligible Medicare and Medicaid patients um, as well. So those are some of the pieces that we've, we've brought together in this division. We have more capabilities that we'll be bringing in, more pieces that we will be, that we will be developing. Right now, we are in a, in a process of assessing the effectiveness of these pieces and in some cases doing some redesign and rebuild so that we know that they're actually yielding outcomes. Let me bring us back to the, to the overarching theme of today around this tension between providing care in both a, um, an environment where you're reimbursed in some cases, 20%, for 20% of your, your patients in value-based care, and then the other 80 uh, in, in fee-for-service. Walk us through some of the challenges that, that you all at Sutter, and quite frankly, most of our colleagues around the country are, are facing in terms of providing care under these respective arrangements, uh, given that they have different incentives, different requirements, and, and terms. Yeah. You know, I think one of, one of the key things that we need to do, and I'm speaking in sort of very broad terms, uh, including as an industry, we actually need to call out and discuss the tension and refrain from using uh, 
buzzwords or euphemisms that I think mask the dilemma. One of the things over the years that I've heard physicians say um, so many times, or a variation of this, is something like, well, in, in value-based care, it's easier to do the right thing. Or when I have a capitated patient, I can do the right thing. And, and, and people will kind of throw out that statement. But, you know, just, just take a step back for a second with that <laughs> statement, right? Like, I mean, I don't know anybody, I don't know anybody who goes into work and says, well, I want to do the wrong thing today, right? So what, it, what is that statement of, well, in this situation, I can do the right thing or it's easier to do the right thing. You know, what are they saying? And if we don't actually, you know, parse that out and unpack it and really say what we're meaning, we don't call out the tension. And I think what people are trying to say or what people want to say is that when I have a patient who is capitated, we can provide resources, services, devote a level of time, energy, and effort that would otherwise not be reimbursed in fee-for-service or generate an RVU. And if we can start to actually say something, instead of saying it's easier to do the right thing and then move on in the conversation, if we can start to get away from that kind of phrase and actually unpack it and say what we're meaning, it, it actually is the first step, which is calling out, just calling out the tension, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then when you call out the tension, uh, I think it lends to two things, um, is, is being able to do something about it. And the, the other piece is, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with tension, right? Uh, tension can be very good. Tension can be productive. Tension can be constructive. It's all in how it's managed. Let me double click on that and, and, and let's, I'm naming the tension and I'm going to name it with a very real example and then tell me how you all negotiate this every day because it happens in hospitals, which is there's this inherent tension between a inpatient hospital administrator who needs to keep the beds full, right, uh, with the ACO or the pop health executive whose incentives and goals are to keep that pa their pop patient population out of that very same hospital. They both yeah. work for Sutter Health. You're all sitting around the same executive table. And again, this is not taking away from the North Star of everybody wants to provide great care. So that is always the goal. But when you, when you dig deeper, their attention uh, around, that, around that executive table, how, what do you do in that situation? Yeah. And uh, sort of first, first caveat or mea culpa, I don't think we have it figured out perfectly. And it's a, <laughs> And it's a, and it's a, it's definitely a, it's it's definitely a work in in progress. For those levels of leadership in an organization, hopefully, do not play itself out directly on an individual patient decision basis. So, but where that should and probably does play itself out is on pieces around who pays for what in terms of resourcing and infrastructure, who gets credit for what um, from a quality or financial 
um, based perspective, who gets to make, going to your earlier question and statement, who gets to make some of the decisions uh, with respect to tra strategy, tempo, and movement in, in value-based care? So, so hopefully that's where the, and hopefully it is, productive tension is, is playing itself out. I think two of the most important things that we can do as an organization is to clarify decision-making rights. You know, where does sort of the decision on the tempo and the contracts and the degree of risk, who gets to make that decision in an organization? I think one of the second most important pieces we can do is to clarify where does the resourcing, both from the bodies and, and ultimately from a financial perspective, where does that question, where does that, where does that decision get made? But more importantly, where does the resourcing, where does the money come from reside? I think one of the things that we did with establishing this new division is that it was an explicit call out that the resourcing for population health would be separate from the uh, the, the funding of it um, would be separate directly from from some of the uh, from some of the other aspects of the delivery system. And then the last piece, I think, again, that needs to be talked about or resolved or as part of the management of the tension is really around incentive alignment. But that's a piece that we're actually actively working through. You know, how do how do people get rewarded and how do those rewards accrue and on what basis so that you can move an organization in the right direction? I uh, really appreciate you making these comments because I see because we often talk about what the work is and what you're highlighting is that the how the work is organized, uh, the governance, the organizational structure, the incentives, uh, all also need to be paid uh, careful, careful attention, and to make sure that there is there is alignment, and that is hard. That is complex, uh, hard work. Uh, and in terms of how you all have organized things, in terms of making a separate structure, has been a design choice. And we won't have time today to talk about it, but I imagine that there are um, there are potential unintended consequences uh, and challenges that are going to come from a design choice that, that, that you've made a year ago uh, and that you'll have to have to mitigate against uh, because, as you know, no, no model is, is perfect. Let us uh, wrap up on, a, on an optimistic note, uh, which is, as you look ahead, what are you most excited about uh, in the next five to ten years uh, as it pertains to uh, pace of change towards models and contracts uh, that, that are going to help us realize our goals for, for improved patient care for and individuals and populations. I, I will speak about something that's very nascent work, but I think it's just so, so important to our mission and our success um, that we're, we're, we're working on, and, and I, I know we will have a fully developed approach within the time frame you're asking about. And it's, it's tackled this area about the social determinants of health. Uh, again, just to, just to go back again, it, it is, it, I, I, even though I just used it, I do not like that word. I do not like that word because it is, again, one of these euphemisms 
and we just put it out there and then we walk away. And it's again one of these examples where we actually need to talk about what we're what we really mean. Mm-hmm. And we're talking then when we say that we're going to address the social determinants of health, that means that we're going to help our patients and our communities with um, with hunger, with homelessness, with housing instability, with not being able to get to see the doctor, not being able to get to see them, uh, not to get them home. We're going to help them maybe get a job. We're going to help them get good food. Um, you know, and, and those are like, you know, to talk to talk about to talk about hunger, right? You know, that's that's not something that you know um, probably even occurs necessarily in a day-to-day practice setting um, as well. But if we can start to use that language, those words, and if we can systematically for lack of a better word, it sounds cold, but if we could systematically screen our patients for these, um, for these issues, and if we can help them, I know help is a broad term, it, it could encompass, it could encompass uh, connecting them to resources, it could encompass us connecting them to resources which we help, uh, which we help fund, it could be connecting them to resources that we provide you know, that's the kind of thing that's going to actually ultimately make you successful in value-based care and bending the cost curve because, because as you know, only about 20% of what we are doing is going to really impact an individual's health. You know, all, all these efforts, they're important, they're worthwhile, you have to ensure that they work and that you're not, you know, having regression to the mean effects and, you know, things like that. But it's all of that other stuff that is going to fundamentally make you successful in value-based arrangements. So I am really excited that we are looking forward on, on doing something like this for our organization, for our communities. And I think it fits in with the not-for-profit mission of, uh, of, of our organization and other delivery systems, too. That's, I'm really stoked about that. We uh, appreciate your your time and your insights. Thank you so much, Dr. Sika, for speaking with NEJM Catalyst today. Thank you so much, Namita.